Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend, a wonderful 4th of July. We're into the summer now. There's a lot to talk about. And I'm going to be bringing you everything that happened over the extended weekend and over the last week or so. And I'm going to be talking about the weekend box office, of course, 4th of July is usually a big time for theatrical movie going during the summer movie season. And because of the pandemic, the resuscitation of the box office, this this year's a little bit more interesting than some other years and to kind of see where the building blocks are going from here. So I'm going to be talking about the weekend box office. And also I'm going to be talking about and previewing tomorrow's upcoming episode of Loki, which is the penultimate episode before we get the finale next week. But the first thing that I do want to talk about is some unfortunate news that I luckily haven't been able to talk about over the last few months while I've been doing the Sam Bissell podcast. And even though I've been off off and on the last month or so, there hasn't really been anything like this in the news lately, thank God. But unfortunately, today, there was uh, an unfortunate passing of a major icon within Hollywood history, one of the most influential filmmakers of all time. And that, of course, is Richard Donner, who passed away yesterday at the age of 91 years old. And when you when, when cinephiles think about Richard Donner, He's up there in terms of one of the great filmmakers of all time. I mean, for some people, he very well could be on their Mount Rushmore of of all time filmmakers because of just not just only what he was able to do as a director, but what he was able to do as a producer and as a as a television director and all the great opportunities that he afforded to some of the most influential filmmakers of our time right now. And just what he was able to do for a lot of people and inspiring them into the world of film and television and, and, and aspiring to be artists in their own way is something that really solely can be put on Richard Donner. And for a lot of people, when you think of Richard Donner's name, the first thing, the first film that you're going to think of, of course, is the first ever Superman film, Superman the movie that came out in 1978 with Christopher Reeve and Gene Hackman and was really kind of the, the, one of the, the first superhero film that made people realize that you can put a superhero film on the big screen. And even though we think of those films as very campy nowadays compared to what we now see in the comic book movie realm, it very much was influential and iconic and transcending for what it was able to do and and showcasing to a lot of people that you can be profitable with comic book movies and translate them from the comic books to the big screen. And when you see a lot of the, the tributes that people have been putting on social media, the one thing that people have been saying about Richard Donner is making them believe that they can fly. And again, the way that Richard Donner was able to transcend visual effects and make people actually think that Superman could fly and not make it so at the time period campy and, <clears throat> excuse me, look very kind of of, of, of very just very robust and, and very campy. It wasn't really like that during that time period. And also, he, you can credit Richard Donner for being the first first person to have his own kind of of riff with the studio when it comes to a comic book movie and creating their own cut as it became known especially in the early 2000s that Richard Donner basically almost had a fully complete version of Superman 2 that he was going to do but there were riffs and and a lot of disputes between the studio and himself with the vision that they wanted to do and they didn't like it and they decided to let him go and they brought in somebody else to finish the second Superman film and and over the years, Richard Donner has always said that 
he did have his own cut of the sequel, and that was put out in the early 2000s as what what it would be called as Superman 2, the Donner cut. And that is really kind of one of the main comparisons when we talk about Zack Snyder's Justice League. One of the influences is how that similar story kind of transcended with what we got this year with Zack Snyder's Justice League. So everywhere you look... Richard Donner has just been associated with being able to just be really influential in all different kinds of places. And the people that he inspired, I mean, he inspired again, like I said before, some of the most iconic film directors of our time right now. When you look at people like Steven Spielberg and and how Donner was able to help Spielberg kind of get off his feet and collaborate on films like The Goonies. And everyone always associates that, 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 that movie as a Steven Spielberg film, but it was really Donner that that shepherded that ship on set directing that movie. And he just brought out the kid and I think in a lot of people and he helped Steven Spielberg as a producer with making that movie and really kind of gearing him to what he would be able to do. And then being influential to directors like Patty Jenkins. And we all knew, especially it were really with both Wonder Woman movies that they are very heavily influential in the Donner Superman film and especially the first Wonder Woman, you can definitely see a lot of parallels between the first Donner film, Superman movie, and Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman. And Patty Jenkins has always said how much inspiration she drew from that film. And it seemed like her and Donner were very close, especially towards the tail end of his career. And and it seemed like they were really good friends. And also what made Donner so great as well is the fact that he was an executive producer on a lot of the movies that he did as well. And specifically, when you look at some of the later films that he did in the early 2000s, he also was somebody that helped shepherd the career of Kevin Feige. And and he was very influential in what we probably know now to be the Marvel Cinematic Universe as Donner was a producer on the first two X-Men films, X-Men in 2000 and X2 and, and, and X2 and being in 2002. So it just shows that Donner's scope didn't just correlate with one field. It just went all over the place. And he also did television with with making and directing show episodes such as The Twilight Zone. He did the one with William Shatner. He did episodes of Gilligan's Island, Get Smart, Man from Uncle. All these influential 60s and 70s television shows and 50s television television shows that are very influential in today's day and age, Donner had a hand in that as well. And I think what makes him so iconic as well is the fact that for Richard Donner, he seemed like such an auteur filmmaker. And you would never, when you think Richard Donner and just the way that he conducted himself, you never really thought of him maybe as being kind of a big budgeted filmmaker and, and, and on these big kind of IPs like Lethal Weapon and The Goonies and Superman. But what he was able to do is just bring, I think, an auteur sense to these blockbusters and make them just work so incredibly well. And I think show people that you can mix art with big budget spectacle and work with studios at the same time. And even though he bashed heads with a lot of people, it seems like in the end, there was compromise that was able to be had. His vision was able to be seen as well. So I think for him, that is especially where he shines the brightest and where he really goes from here. 
And I think for 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 Donner, I think just kind of knowing how influential he was and how he will continue to be influential is just something that can never be replicated. It's something that I don't think anybody can ever really see happening ever again. And just again, that influence is just something that just can't be unmatched at any specific time period. So for for the entire family of Richard Donner, his friends, it's just, it's an incredibly tragic passing. But again, it's it's one where he's lived the full life, Richard Donner. And it's not something like a, like a Chadwick Boseman in anything where his life was cut short like that. You can look at Richard Donner and see his full body of work, but still the passing, I think, hurts knowing that you won't be able to hear any more from this legend icon or see any more of his work. But the work that he did in the past was so, so well done, so highly regarded, so influential that I think he will go down as one of the great filmmakers of all time considering what he was able to do with so much, so many different blockbusters and the influence that he had on so many different filmmakers and producers throughout that are that have made their mark on today's day and age of Hollywood and on filmmaking as well, that he will just go down as a great one. And it, it's very sad to see that passing, but again, a life very well fulfilled, I, I would say from my mind and my perspective, and I'm sure he, his friends and family think the same way, but still a tough pill to swallow as Richard Donner does pass away at the age of 91 years old and the passing of again truly one of the most iconic legendary filmmakers of all time now to move on from the the passing of richard donner looking back on his life and his career we're going to be moving on to the weekend box office and again this weekend was the july 4th weekend of 2021 and even just the fact that we do have movies in theaters is a huge step up from where we were last year around this time in 2020 where we just had some films releasing on streaming services. The big one around this time period was Hamilton releasing on Disney Plus, but nothing on the big screen, nothing like what we had in 2019, 2018. And this weekend kind of got back to that semblance in some kind of way. And it didn't reach new box office heights that we haven't seen before. It didn't match what we saw even just three years ago, but still just to get back to this point of having big blockbusters in theaters, having theaters open again, having a box office, is a huge, huge improvement over what has come over the last year and a half or so. And this weekend's box office was still, I think, a significant one in showcasing where the direction of theatrical movie going is at right now. And this is a great statistic to have right now at this point in the box office during the summer season is that every single one of the top 10 films domestically grossed over a million dollars during the box office, which again, you might think a few years ago, not that big of a deal, but again, considering where we were at almost a year ago, this is an incredible feat in showcases that people really, I think, are excited to get back to the movies when it is a film that they are excited to see on the big screen. And I think films like A Quiet Place Part Two, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, and of course, F9 have really showcased that those are some of the big high profile films that people want to go see in the last few weeks. And speaking of F9, it did win out the long three to four day weekend of July 4th and this weekend or this year rather July 4th did end up being on a Sunday during the weekend sometimes you'll get films that will come out during the during like on a Wednesday during July 4th because usually July 2nd could end up on a Wednesday and then you get July 4th on either a Thursday or a Friday and then you have the long extended weekend to kind of go 
along with it. So it's usually almost like a week-long box office that you're kind of intaking throughout the weekend when you take in the long four to five day account of that said weekend. But this weekend, because July 4th ended up on a Sunday, a lot of the films, whether it was releasing on a streaming service or it was releasing in theaters, they rather just instead came out on a Friday and then had the long extended weekend going into Monday to rally up the box office. So this, again, this year was a little bit more unusual than in past years as well in that regard in terms of release scheduling when it comes to July 4th movies around this specific window. But still, I think it was a great weekend all the way around. The weekend garnered around $80 million overall. Again, a far cry from when we got even in just 2019. But again, a good baby step upward to kind of going back to where we were during those great box office years that we got before the the pandemic. So to get just into the numbers really quick of what won the weekend. Again, F9 won the weekend. Three-day count this weekend was $22 million. And then, of course, over the four-day weekend, it was $30 million. And it had about a... a I would say a 67 to 70% drop in its $70 million opening debut here in the United States, which is very significant and I think showcases that usually this happens with Fast and Furious films, and I think it proved it again this year that they are very much front-loaded. The first weekend, a lot of the major fans go out to see it. They're very excited about it, and then you'll get some of the fans coming back for repeat viewings. You might get some people that were maybe on the fence going to see it the second, third weekend, and that's really where you see kind of the legs that the Fast and Furious franchise gets. But what makes it interesting is that even though it took a significant steep drop from its opening weekend to second weekend, a lot of the bulk of the damage has already been done as right now, the Fast and Furious franchise or F9, the Fast Saga overall has accumulated over $123 million domestically here in the United States. And it should reach, according to to the reports, by today or even yesterday, Yesterday, F9 should have eclipsed over half a billion dollars at the worldwide box office. So again, a a huge increase in where the box office was last year. And I think for the for F9, I think it's just incredible in the fact that again, it's it 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 did a smart thing in rolling out over the last couple of weeks and not really doing everything in one fell swoop and kind of of steering and strategizing of where specific markets are at their strength right now. And there are some areas that are not fully up to capacity, like areas in the United Kingdom and and in other parts of Europe as well. And so that's why they're going to be having their premieres and opening weekends closer to the month of August than they are right now. So there's still a lot left to be said with F9 and the Fast Saga, but right now it is the highest grossing film domestically. It is the highest grossing film, American kind of film in the in 2021 right now not account, not accounting for the two chi- main mainland chinese films that are the top two highest grossing films of the year so far but f9 outdid godzilla versus kong to overtake that spot which it had around 443 million dollars or so and it beat it out domestically as well as it took godzilla versus kong months to get to 100 million dollars whereas for f9 it only took two weekends to get to that number so even though it was a steep drop for f9 I think it was a a great, again, kind of indicator of where it already is. 
And I think it was able to kind of clean up really well, given that this upcoming weekend, we're getting the next big high profile film to see where the box office is going to be in the Marvel Studios' latest with Black Widow. So again, that's going to be eating up a lot of the same demographic and market as F9. So the fact that it had two weeks to kind of make this kind of money, I think it does really, really well. And it'll be interesting to see the kind of legs that it has to see if it can maybe get up to $600, $700 million and maybe match what Hobbs and Shaw made in 2019. And I think if it does that, I think that's a really great success story for F9. They don't make a billion dollars like they maybe would have made pre-pandemic, but in a post-pandemic world right now, I think that's a great success story for them right now. And then opening up on in number two was the hybrid release of the Boss Baby sequel, Boss Baby Family Business, where you had Alec Baldwin coming back into the role. James Marsden came into this role as well. And it didn't make the kind of money that the first Boss Baby made, where it made around $50 million its opening weekend. But but again, when you take into account the number of theaters that are open right now, it's not up to full capacity just yet. It made around $20 million its opening weekend on the four-day. And on the three-day window, it made around $16 million. So again, not a bad start for the Boss Baby sequel. And again, given the fact that it is a hybrid release and you do have the version of of watching it on Peacock instead of seeing it in theaters, $20 million, I think, excuse me, is a really good number for it right now. And I think that moving forward, it'll be very interesting to see what the kind of market for family, family-driven family films is right now. Because according to the reports, it seems like a, a big percentage of people that went to the theaters for these movies were families that had children under the age of 13. So clearly families are starting to feel comfortable about going back to the theaters once again to see films and not sitting at home and watching them on the television screens because they, they feel a lot safer because of the pandemic right now. So... Again, very encouraging numbers this weekend for for the, the, the theatrical exhibition, for theater chains. And also, I think, given the fact that it did end up with three films, the top three films of the weekend, this is a big weekend for Universal Pictures as they did enter the top three, coming in at number three in their Blumhouse film, The Forever Purge, which is the fifth and, as of right now, final installment in the Purge franchise. It came in... Excuse me, it was $15 million opening weekend, which is on the lower side of their opening weekend. But again, pandemic-wise, considering and factoring that into consideration, it's a really good number for them right now. And I think overall, when you look at Universal, when you look at Universal in the top three, for a studio that was were, was one of the first ones to prioritize either doing a, a straight-to-VOD and then, and then cutting the theatrical window in half, working with chains such as Cinemark and then working with AMC the, the what they, they what they've been able to do in terms of just putting out films for theatrical exhibition and determining what the window might be they've been having the most success so far alongside Paramount with A Quiet Place Part 2 so I think it just speaks volumes to the fact that the strategy that Universal had in delaying these films until this year paid off in dividends and it's showing up in the fact that even though the theatrical window is shortened with some of the deals with these theater chains 
They still have some of the biggest franchises that people really want to see right now, and they're going to see them with F9, the boss baby. Even though it didn't do as well as the first one, it still still did well in the midst of a pandemic, and the same thing with the Forever Purge. And then coming in at number four was A Quiet Place Part 2, speaking about it, entering another $5 million this weekend. That is $145 million domestically and over $220 million worldwide. So again, a great number for Paramount who again is also trying to gauge the the window for the theatrical and the the shortening of the window and it seems like right now before it enters onto Paramount Plus and onto VOD in the next week or so it really cleaned up at the box office did really really well opened strong to start off the summer movie season and it seems like it's ending strong really well in its exclusive theatrical window it's going to be ending in, in, in about a, a week or so. And then hitting number five was the Hitman's Wife Bodyguard, grossing $3.9 million this weekend. Cruella grossed $3.2 million to come in at number two. It has $77 million here domestically, but uh, an impressive $202 million worldwide. So Cruella is making its numbers elsewhere as well and showcasing to be maybe not a smash hit like some of the other Disney live action retellings that have come throughout its library in the last few years. But still, again, given the pandemic and given the fact that it was a, a hybrid release on Disney Plus as well for three additional dollars, I think it's a good sign of where Cruella is going to end up at the very end of its run. And then coming in at number seven was Peter Rabbit to the run. Runaway with $2.8 million, and then coming in at number eight, again, making a very impressive debut, was the A24 indie film Zola, coming in at number eight with $1.26 million. Overall, it made around $2.4 million here domestically, so again, a really good sign for, in, in the midst of a pandemic, that an indie film like this, like Zola, which has been getting a lot of great crit critical buzz, was supposed to come out again last year, but A24 decided decided to sit on it, thought that they had a really good theatrical experience on their hands that they wanted people to see in theaters and not just strictly on VOD on their television screens. So they decided to delay it and put it out this year. And again, kind of like what Universal has been doing with a lot of their films in A Quiet Place Part 2 with, with Paramount and, and waiting and waiting and knowing that the audience will come out to see this film when the time is right. Zola did the exact same thing for A24. And again, <clears throat> I think for a lot of indie studios, this is a great sign for them that, again, if you have a film that's gaining a lot of high buzz, people are really interested in seeing it, if they feel comfortable, they will go out and see these films. So a really good sign for, I think, indie films that they're not completely, totally shut out of the box office just yet and that, that they might have to worry about how they'll make their finances back if people don't go see their films, that they're going to be very, very precarious about their money. But I think Zola is a good example of, of where that mindset is going to be going for indie films down the line. And then coming in at number nine, was The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, grossing another million and a half at the box office, and then coming in just around, I would say, around $5,000 short, or around around $10,000 short, was In the Heights, coming in at number 10. And this is, I think, one of the ones that is a little bit more disappointing in the fact that, again, still an enigma 
of what the hell happened with In Heights, where it really went wrong, but it seems like this film just didn't really catch on well with audiences in theaters for some reason, didn't do well on HBO Max, so I think this is just one that people are going to be scratching their heads about, asking what the hell went wrong, where where the 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 disconnect happened and reaching out to audiences that were that weren't going to see it no matter what so i think there's going to be questions about in the heights coming forward unfortunately and unfortunately instead of being one of the great success stories i think in terms of the box office financially it's going to turn into one of the the negative stories and and again head scratchers of 2021 but that is it with the top 10 box office this weekend i'll be back with it next monday as we dissect everything that went on with black widow and see where that performance led to is marvel studios truly back are they the ones that's going to tip the scale entirely and just continue to increase where f9 kind of left off after last weekend with 70 million dollars projection wise that they have it at around 80 to 110 90 million dollars so that would be the biggest boost yet to see that where people are at mind mindset wise for what kind of films they really want to see back in theaters right now in the midst of this post-pandemic world that we're living in right now so overall guys what did you think about this weekend's box office a july 4th weekend box office again not like it was when spider-man far from home came out in 2019 or in in 2018 2017 but still a really good weekend nonetheless when we're still in this kind of pandemic environment right now people are still trying to adjust back to some kind of normalcy. And it seems like the box office is doing the same exact thing. And the last few weeks have been very positive for the box office. And again, this weekend, it seems like we could be riding more positive momentum with Marvel Studios' Black Widow coming out this weekend. So what do you guys think about it? Let me know and leave your thoughts. Now, the final thing that I want to talk about today on the Sam Bissell podcast is, of course, not not reviewing the last few weeks of Loki because I know I haven't been on to, to review them. I've been very busy with, with the work that I've been doing in the city right now, so I haven't been able to get to it. But I do have the time today, and instead of uh, reviewing the last week of Loki or so, I'm going to be really previewing the penultimate episode of Loki this week since tomorrow is the premiere of episode five of the hit Marvel show right now. And I got to say, I'll just give a quick a quick recap right now. I loved what I saw from episode four of Loki. It really hit back to the heights of the first two episodes. I thought episode three, I think, now looks a lot better considering what happened in the fourth episode. But I think that it didn't hit the same heights as those first two. But episode four hit those heights and exceeded them in so many different ways. And I think this episode of Loki really delivers some of the best twists and turns story-wise that we have seen in any of the Marvel Cinematic Universe shows so far with WandaVision and the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And it made sense story-wise. It fit the character narratives that we've been dealing with in the last three episodes before episode four. And the way that it ends the episode is kind of a jaw-dropper. The, 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 some, some of the character fates that we've seen are, are, are jaw-droppers and, and, and ask questions that we haven't had in a while so i just think that loki has done an an exceptional job so far and i think for people that maybe were a little bit on the lull side of the falcon and the winter soldier i think are are refining their their enthusiasm in this show that was maybe on the same heights as what wandavision had earlier in the year so i love what i've been seeing so far i love the addition of sophia dimartino i think she makes an an amazing loki variant as sylvia i think tom hiddleston is going to continue to just do some incredible 
work. I love what we've been seeing from Ravona Renslayer. I want to say is the correct way to, to pronounce that name. Ravona Renslayer at Bagum and Bhatti Ross. She's been amazing. Owen Wilson brought it as usual as, as he's done in this television show as Mobius. He's really, truly been a great highlight. And if you have seen the episode, I do hope that we get more Mobius in the last two episodes. But now I think is going to be very interesting to see where these last two episodes of Loki are going. And again, if you saw the post credit stinger, at the very end, you realize where Loki is now. You realize what he could potentially be up against in the last two episodes. And to me, this is crunch time. It's going to be very interesting to see where Marvel goes from from here with these two episodes. Because, again, one of the things that I've been very critical about, and it goes to, from WandaVision to Falcon and Winter Soldier, is that I feel like they do a great job in setting these stories up in their initial episodes but when it comes down to even with nine episodes of wandavision and six with falcon the winter soldier i feel like the finale is always rushed and we get this penultimate episode that's great and, and you wonder how they're going to be able to wrap everything up in the finale and then they usually wrap everything up in a very quickish way that it doesn't feel as satisfying i'm hoping that they learn their lesson a little bit from that with loki and i know all three of these shows that we've got so far on Disney Plus were kind of the initial wave of Disney Plus shows from Marvel Studios. So maybe after this one, they'll learn their lesson a little bit in the coming shows that we're going to get in the future. But I think when we look at Loki so far, it's very audacious and bold in the things that it's trying to talk about. But I think so far, they haven't really filled their hat with a whole lot to juggle. I think they're juggling just the right amount so far where they're not kind of going off and doing a lot of separate things that you're wondering how they're going to wrap everything up. But everything kind of seems tight and condensed so far and really focused in making this a true kind of character study of Loki in a way that we haven't really seen before. And we've gotten some good characterizations of Loki in the MCU feature films, but this has just gone far and beyond anything we've gotten with Loki so far. And and, you, and, I, and I think that's a great thing and a surprising thing because I think with Loki, you always wondered, because we got him in so many films throughout the MCU, you wondered, well, what else are we going to learn from Loki that we haven't already seen before? And this show has shown that there was, there was a lot more to tell than we realized. And, and I'm really, really excited about it. I'm excited what Michael Waldron has done with this show as a writer and his writing staff has have just been incredible. And I can understand now why when when Scott Derrickson left Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and they needed a little bit of a rewrite, I can see why Kevin Feige brought Michael Waldron onto the set to help rewrite the, the Multiverse of Madness script with Sam Raimi. Because if, if this does have some correlation to that movie and it deals with the sacred timeline and all these multiverses, I think Michael Waldron has done an incredible job and his staff of Loki because you got to give them credit as well that I believe that they have done a really, really good job of not steering too far and making all these complicated rules. And I know in interviews when Loki first initially came out, he was a little bit worried that he, he wanted to make sure that they had these rules established and that there was a weak interval for each and every one of these episodes that 
people could pick apart and really maybe try to unweb all the webbing that Malcolm Waldron has done with the timeline. And so far, there might be a few holes here and there that you can nitpick, but nothing that is huge that really causes some kind of of plot trouble that you can't get out of. I think Michael Waldron has done a really good job of making it simplistic, yet asking a bunch of questions at the same time and really making kind of seamlessly transition from what we got in Avengers Endgame to what we have right now. And it does make a lot of sense. So I can understand why Feige would entrust Michael Waldron with Multiverse of Madness, which seems like it's going to be kind of the next big game-changing film from the MCU right now, where a lot of stuff is leading to that specific film right now with Spider-Man No Way Home, with WandaVision, and now Loki, and 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 we'll see what happens in the next couple of films as well. But it's going to be very interesting to see what happens moving forward. But I really like what I've been seeing so far. Love the 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 direction from Kate Heron has just been absolutely incredible as well. I hope that they bring her back for for another season of Loki or for something else in the MCU as well. It's just been absolutely amazing. But I hope that Michael Wadra and his team and everybody else can stick the landing with this film that even though I, I have liked, I, I love WandaVision, I really like Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but I did have criticisms for both of their finales in one way or another that I think I'm hoping Loki is able to not have those same problems as well. But I'm very much looking forward to the penultimate episode. I think if there is one strong point for both shows so, so far is that the penultimate episode for each of the shows, Falcon Winter Soldier and WandaVision and my eyes have been the strongest episodes of the shows that they are, are both in their respective categories and and I think with Loki it's it's been hitting almost every a home run with almost every single episode minus episode three I think it didn't hit a home run but it was still a very good episode I'm very curious to see if Loki can eclipse that with the penultimate episode or it can hit that same level as episode one, two, and four of being just on that level of greatness. So we'll see what happens, but I'm very much looking forward to the penultimate episode of Loki. If I'm on tomorrow and and I have time, I'm definitely going to be trying to do a recap of the penultimate episode, episode five of Loki, and give you guys my non-spoiler thoughts, and then wait till Monday to give you what I my thoughts on the latest of Loki spoiler-wise. So that is the game plan for right now when it comes to Loki. And again, this is a huge week just for for Marvel in general. I mean, I think for a lot of Marvel fans, this was always circled in the calendar of having an episode of Loki on Wednesday, and then right for the weekend, we get the latest from the MCU feature films with the 24th installment in the MCU with Black Widow finally. So this is a big week for Marvel. This is huge to see. Is is the, uh, Can the shows and the, the films, co- even though they are in the same universe now, can we have, is there such a thing as too much Marvel? And I think this is one of the weekends we're really going to see that come into play. And uh, it'll be very interesting to see, but I'm very excited. We finally have a full slate of Marvel coming up this weekend and I'm very, very excited about it. I'm excited to see where Loki brings us. And of course, I'll also be previewing Black Widow tomorrow or Thursday as well. So what did you? What do you guys think about Loki so far? Are you? Do you like what you've been seeing? Are you excited for the penultimate episode? Let me know and leave your thoughts below. But with that down and out of the way, that will do it 
for this edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast. So once again, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out my channel for more content. You check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and much more. Also, make sure to tune in on to the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on there, such as You Mad Bro, the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, check out goal-driven professionals geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also, check out The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson, giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. Also, along the way, make sure to check out these other amazing shows on the podcast solutions, such as Wrestle Attic Radio, WrestleMania Podcast, and Midnight Showing. You can check these out and so much more on the website, ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com, also on Facebook and Twitter at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, when you get a chance, make sure to follow me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Bissell Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And also on Facebook at Sam Bissell. Also, you can check out my YouTube channel at the Sam Bissell Podcast. So once again, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, keep on screening.